0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow Believers, and welcome into to episode number 27 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network. Thank you so much for joining me on another great episode. We've got a big card coming up this weekend in the UFC, of course. UFC 261 is coming up this Saturday. And it's really a showcase for women's MMA with two title fights in two women's divisions. And then, of course, the main event, the rematch between Kamara Usman and Jorge Masidal. So a pretty decent fight card that I'll be previewing later on in the show. However, I wanted to touch on the verdict recently in the trial of Derek Chauvin And I just wanted to say that this was a long time coming. And I really don't think it should take almost a full year since this tragic incident happened for a white man to be held accountable for killing a black man. Even worse yet, a white police officer. And it seems like every day you're hearing more and more about cops killing black people. There was the case of Dante Wright. I know that I've seen some teenagers also get shot that were black. This is just very tragic. It seems like it's happening way too often. In fact, I read an article that every day during the Derek Chauvin trial, there was someone in the United States being killed by the police. Their training needs to improve. They need to not use deadly force as often as they do. And I just hope that we can get better as a society and uh, the verdict in this trial is really one step forward in uh, kind of equaling out the justice system. Of course we know it's not equal and it's definitely skewed towards the privileged, the rich, and the white and definitely skewed against people of color. So hopefully judicial systems around the country take note of this verdict And we see more caution used in law enforcement. And we also see the judicial system bringing people to accountability more often. Now, of course, now that Derek Chauvin has been ruled guilty, we're still waiting for the other three officers to be tried that were at the incident and did not stop Derek Chauvin from putting his knee on George Floyd's neck. For way too long, almost 10 minutes. So, hopefully, those other officers are also charged with the crimes they committed, and everyone can be held accountable for those egregious actions that they committed in Minnesota. So, hopefully, this is a step in the right direction, and we see more change coming, and definitely a change in the practices of how law enforcement deals with specifically people of color because it's not just something that happens over and over. I feel like it's ingrained in our culture and we've kind of just come to expect it and that is not at all acceptable especially in today's America. We need to be more sensitive to these racial disparities and need to do more to combat it on a national level and then as well as a local level uh, in each police department. And going back to the Derek Chauvin trial, it also begs the question of if this incident wasn't caught on video and it's say it happened 10 to 20 years ago, would this have even been a trial? Would this have even made mainstream news? And I really don't know the answer to that question. But because we have video evidence and it is so visceral, So clear to see what was happening in front of us. A very hard video to watch. That only one verdict could come out of this. And I'm glad that they came with the correct verdict. And we'll see if he gets life imprisonment for uh, committing this crime. But what a lot of people are talking about is that Derek Chauvin and George Floyd actually knew each other going back I believe 15 years And they were believed to have a contentious relationship with each other. And a lot of people are talking about the racial disparity. And the racial profiling that went on in the murder of George Floyd. But I don't think it was a case so much of racial profiling. As it was Derek Chauvin committing some kind of sick cruel act of revenge. Against George Floyd. And I do think if. Derek Chauvin didn't know George Floyd at all and they were complete strangers. Perhaps this could have been avoided but maybe that deep-seated rage that Derek Chauvin had against this black man for some reason is what caused this unfortunate incident to occur but uh, we're just getting into the details that I noticed weren't really discussed uh, during the court proceedings. Well, that will conclude my take on the Derek Chauvin verdict And hopefully we never see this happen again, but I'm not confident in saying that we won't see it again. And now a word from our sponsors, betonline.ag. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. And now let's get into some UFC recaps. I'll go ahead and start with UFC 260, Miocic vs Nganu 2. This was back on March 27th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'll start with that third fight on the card between Sean O'Malley and Thomas Almeida. And O'Malley really need to get back on the winning track after losing his last fight getting upset by Marlon Vera. Because I believe he either twisted an ankle or hurt his foot which caused him to go down and then Marlon Vera quickly took advantage with some ground and pound to end the fight and it was a big win for Marlon Vera and uh, Sean O'Malley showed in this fight what makes him such a promising uh, prospect in that bantamweight division at 135 pounds he's got fluidity to his striking versatility uses great feints it seems like he has really great defense because he's hard to hit. Always getting in and out of range, it seems like, at the right times. And he's only 26 years old. He's got a world of potential in uh, in terms of how he strikes and how he thinks about fighting and how he executes during his fights. I mean, he completely controlled Thomas Almeida for the whole fight. And this guy is a veteran of the sport. His record is 22-5. and 5. Uh, Thomas Almeida is 29 years old, and he hasn't won uh, his in a fight since 2016. So right now, Almeida is on a four-fight losing streak. And uh, before that four-fight losing streak, his only loss came to Godi, Cody Garmbrandt. So clearly this guy is a very quality fighter. But Sean O'Malley just seemed like he was on a different level. In terms of his striking capabilities and the fluidity in which he was moving. And it seemed like early on in this fight in the first round that Sean O'Malley had him hurt. And it looked like the end of the fight. But give credit to Almeida because I think O'Malley celebrated too early. uh, Gave Almeida that little bit of time to recover and he was able to last Until the third round where he uh, got knocked out once again. And Sean O'Malley put a beautiful bow on an amazing performance. He's really becoming one of uh, my favorite fighters to watch. Because of how he moves. It's kind of in this unorthodox way. And kind of is developing his own style in there. A dream matchup for me would be uh, for Sean O'Malley to be taking on Corey Sandhagen in his next fight. Assuming that Sanhagen beats Dillashaw, then I think that would be a really great matchup to see O'Malley take on Sanhagen. But if Dillashaw comes back and looks really good and uh, beats Sanhagen, then maybe you match up Dillashaw against O'Malley. But there's no doubt that O'Malley has all the chops to become the bantamweight champion. And now that uh, Aljamain Sterling is the champion because of a disqualification in his fight against Peter Jan... Uh, We'll see what happens in that division and it looks like both Jan and Sterling could be on the mend for a little while. I uh, read that Sterling I believe got surgery on his neck so he'll be out for a few months and Peter Jan could be back before that but maybe he wants to wait it out and get an immediate rematch with Aljamain Sterling. So right now the top of the bantamweight division is kind of in flux but the the tier just below uh, those champions... Uh, guys like Corey Sanhagen and Sean O'Malley, maybe even T.J. Dillashaw and uh, Cody Garbrandt—they're all you know wanting to get that title shot. So uh, there's a big fight coming up, as I mentioned, uh, uh, with Sanhagen in that bantamweight division. So we'll see what happens there. But there's no doubt that Sean O'Malley, with this dominant performance. Definitely put his name in the ring as a contender to watch out for in that 135 pound division. Now let's take a look at the fight stats here. O'Malley, he landed two takedowns during the fight. And he landed 91 total strikes, 86 significant strikes, 41 to the head, 24 to the body, and 21 to the legs. So clearly uh, varying up his striking. He can throw a lot of good combinations He's got a great uh, straight right hand that he's knocked out opponents with. And it seemed like Almeida could never get going. Could never get on the inside and really uh, get a rhythm going with his striking. Because of O'Malley's movements in and out of range. And his constant striking and uh, keeping Almeida at bay. And really beat up throughout the fight. Almeida, he only landed 25 strikes in Three rounds of fighting, so that just shows amazing defense by O'Malley. He landed 9 to the head, 3 to the body, and 13 to the legs. And he was 1 of 2 on his takedown attempts, but only had 22 seconds of ground control time. So you can see from the stats here that O'Malley really dominated from start to finish. And to only get hit 25 times in a fight that almost lasted the full 3 rounds shows that O'Malley is improving defensively each time he comes into the octagon, and he'll even fight with his hands down to try to draw his opponents in before getting out of the way of their strikes and uh, landing his own devastating versatile striking that he has. And another aspect of O'Malley's striking game that I like is that he doesn't just focus on headhunting, he's willing to go to the body and the legs of his opponents to break them down, uh, you know, piece by piece. And that's exactly what he did against a really tough fighter now, Meta, who doesn't get finished very often. Looking at his record, the only times he's been knocked out was by Cody Garbrandt in 2016, and also by Rob Font in 2018, and then most recently, of course, by Sean O'Malley in his last fight. And that's another fight that's coming up Actually, in the bantamweight division, between Cody Garbrandt and Rob Font, so two big bantamweight fights coming up. We've got Dillashaw and Sanhagen, and then also Garbrandt versus Rob Font. We'll uh, know a little bit more about how the bantamweight division may shake out after uh, those two fights. But Sean O'Malley, with this performance, it's going to be hard to find a more impressive young prospect than O'Malley in the bantamweight division, and I think this guy's destined for greatness, and could indeed be destined to be a UFC champion. We'll just have to wait and see how his career plays out, but from where I'm looking at it, it looks like he has all the tools to be great in this sport, and he's just going to continue working, maybe work a little bit more on his ground game, so he's not so striking dependent, and he can become a better all round fighter, and I think the sky's the limit for Sean O'Malley and he showed in this fight why uh, so many believe he's destined for greatness. Now let's get to the co-main event between Tyron Woodley and Vincent Luque. Woodley is now 39 years old and he fought the Brazilian in Vincent Luque who's only 29 years old. So that's a 10 age youth advantage for Luque and Tyron Woodley was the welterweight champion. One of the great welterweights in UFC history. But I think this could be the end of the road for him. I mean he's coming off four straight losses to Kamaru Usman. Gilbert Burns, Kobe Covington and now Vincent Luque. Ever since he lost his belt to Kamaru Usman. He doesn't seem like the same fighter that he was before. In previous to that he actually had six title defenses in the welterweight division. Something very difficult to do. He beat Robbie Lawler, Stephen Thompson twice, Damien Maya, Darren Till, until unfortunately running into the very talented and current welterweight champion in Kamara Usman. And for Vincent Luque, this was exactly the type of win he needed to throw his name in the ring to maybe fight a guy like Gilbert Burns or Kobe Covington next, and it's the type of performance he absolutely needed as the favorite going into this fight and for Tyron Woodley he could really be dealing with retirement now as I said he's 39 years old there's no need for him to keep fighting he's already become a champion in this sport one of the greatest welterweights ever and I think he's accomplished all he can I don't see him reaching the mountaintop once again and if he's just going to be fighting these lower level fights then what's really the point for him And let's look at uh, the fight stats for this fight. Woodley, he landed 21 total strikes, 18 significant, 7 to the head, 10 to the body, and 1 to the legs for 22 seconds of ground control time. Luque, he landed 41 total strikes out of 49, so that is incredible efficiency there. 25 significant strikes, 15 to the head, 10 to the body and 0 to the legs with 2 minutes and 3 seconds of ground control time. And had 1 submission attempt which ended the fight with the Darcy choke. And this fight only lasted 1 round with a 1st round submission win for Vincent Luque. But as long as this fight lasted it was very exciting. Early on it looked like Tyron Woodley might surprise us all and knock out Vincent Luque. But I think he got overconfident in there. Had some sloppy defense. Luke was able to take advantage of this and come back with his own efficient striking to land again and again on Woodley as Woodley just seemed like he couldn't take a punch and couldn't get out of the way of Luque's striking and because of this he ended up losing the fight after going down and getting submitted with a beautiful Darcy choke uh, executed by Luke. So we'll see what this means for Luke. And looking at Luque's record, it's really quite impressive. His last loss came in 2019 to Stephen Thompson. And previous to that, he lost to Leon Edwards uh, back in 2017. So only losing to really the top guys in his division. A rematch with Stephen Thompson would really be quite the fight uh, to make. Or a rematch against Leon Edwards. Both those guys are are uh, great welterweights, and would be a really great fight for Luke to have. If not, as I said, maybe matching up against Gilbert Burns or Colby Covington. There's a lot of good fights for Luque, and with this performance, he's just continuing his upward trajectory. Now having three straight wins over Nico Price, Randy Brown, and now the legend Tyron Woodley. And I would say this win against Tyron Woodley is Luque's best win of his career because looking at Woodley's record as a former champion, he's probably the best fighter that Luke has beaten. Although he fought him when he was 39 years old, it's still a very impressive performance and I can't wait to see where Luke goes from here. And as I said, maybe this is the end of the road for Woodley, and he should just stick to analyzing the sport on TV instead of fighting in the octagon. And now, my fellow fight fans, it's time to recap the main event on that fight card between the former champion Stepe Miocic and the current champion Francis Ngannou. And Miocic is really getting up there in age. He's now 38 years old. His best days are likely behind him. And Francis Ngannou is 34 years old. So a 4 year age gap between them. And watching this fight. I didn't think that Ngannou was going to lose. I believe I predicted a first round knockout for him. It came in the second round. But for me Ngannou finally reached his life's destiny. Which was to become the heavyweight UFC champion of the world. I mean you look at his body. He's like a freak in there, a physical freak. You don't find guys that are that big, that strong, that can move that quickly and hit that hard very often in this sport. And physically, I think he's more gifted than any other heavyweight out there. We'll see how John Jones fares, but I don't think John Jones' first fight in the heavyweight division should be against Francis Ngannou. I think he needs one or two tune-up fights before taking on that behemoth of a man. To me, Derek Lewis deserves the next title shot with what he did against Curtis Blades in his last fight. And looking at the UFC rankings for the heavyweight division, Francis Ngannou of course is the champion. Number one contender Stipe Miocic, two Derek Lewis, three Curtis Blades, four Cyril Gane, five Alexander Volkov. And six, Jarzinho Rosenstrike. Right now, I don't see any of those fighters beating Nganu. I think the only one that might have a chance is John Jones, depending on how he looks in the heavyweight division. But I just want to get back to Nganu and this incredible life journey he's been on to reach the pinnacle of the sport. And like I was saying reach his destiny. Because I believe it was always destiny ever since the first time I watched Nganu fight. That this moment was going to come. That he was going to become the heavyweight champion. And remember he only started training and fighting I believe in his 20s. So it's not like he's been around the sport his whole life. He escaped Cameroon and got caught in the desert a few times. But every time he kept going back again and again, eventually living on the streets of France, training, and because he had this dream that he could be a fighter and be great in the sport. And thank goodness that he didn't let all those difficulties and trials and tribulations that he went through in his journey uh, out of Cameroon and looking for better opportunities thank goodness he didn't let that stop him from eventually achieving these very lofty goals that I'm sure he dreamed of since he was a child. But on a larger scale, I think it also says something about the world that we live in, that someone born in Cameroon or one of these African countries or some of these Asian countries, these third world countries where the opportunity to Uh, become a success in their own country clearly isn't something they're going to be able to achieve. That's why they feel the need to flee their country and go work in other countries to try to send money back to their families. I think that's what Nganu wanted to do. He wanted to escape the poverty that he was born into and build a better life for himself and his family. And because of Nganu's perseverance, because the UFC signed him, and recognized early on that they had a special talent on their hands, we get to witness one of the true physical freaks in all of sport, a behemoth of a man, perfectly chiseled, and perfectly fits the image that you have of a heavyweight champion. Thankfully we get to watch him compete, and hopefully rule the heavyweight division for many years to come. And it's not often that I'm watching a sport or watching a fight that I'm genuinely scared for the other fighter in there. But that's what I felt after watching that first round between Nganu and Miocic. I genuinely felt scared for the health, the long-term health of Stipe Miocic because I didn't want Nganu to hurt him too badly. I could feel the knockout coming and when Stipe got knocked out, I just prayed that he would wake back up. Because Nganu, I believe, his punch is the hardest recorded in history. I think they did it on Sports Science. So this guy hits like a truck. And you look at the takedown defense that he improved from his first fight. When Stipe went for the takedown, Nganu was able to fight it off. And that was a really big moment in the fight. Because it showed that Nganu was going to be able to keep this fight on the feet. And while it was on the feet, Miocic could never get inside and land any really good punches on Nganu. And when he did land a decent punch, he got over eager, left himself wide open, and guess what ended the fight? A beautiful left hook from Nganu that put Stipe down in the second round. And that was the end of the fight. And Nganu has finally reached his destiny of becoming the heavyweight champion. And what Nganu's life story really tells us is that if you have a dream, a desire, and you believe you have the ability to accomplish that dream, that you should let nothing stop you not being thrown in the desert to die and to starve to death. No, you fight out of those adversities and you continue pushing forward in pursuit of your dreams. And while most of us are lucky enough To not have to go through the type of as adversity and hardships that Nganu has gone through in his life, it does really inspire you to do better in your own life and accomplish your own dreams after hearing the amazing life story of Nganu. So I just want to really congratulate him on achieving his destiny and we'll see where he goes from here in the heavyweight division. But for now, Nganu is of course the current heavyweight champion. He's now the third African-born UFC champion in the UFC joining Kamara Usman and Israel Adesanya who both represent Nigeria when they fight. He is the first Cameroonian uh, champion in UFC history however and it's a really big moment uh, for the whole African community and really the heavyweight division to finally have who I believe is the scariest man in all of sports. Finally, be the UFC champion. I think he's more scary than any of the heavyweights in boxing, more than Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, or Deontay Wilder. I'd be more scared of Francis Ngannou than any of those boxers, so I think he deserves that title, and I thought he was the scariest man in all sports before this fight even happened, this rematch with Miocic, and his performance just further proved Why I believe that and many other people do as well. Now let's look at the fight stats for this title fight. Stipe Miocic he landed 12 total strikes. In the course of 2 rounds. 3 to the head, 2 to the body and 7 to the legs. And he was 0 of 1 on his takedown attempts. His opponent and the current champion Nganu landed 2 knockdowns. The second of which ended the fight. And he landed 38 total strikes, 36 significant strikes, 28 to the head, 2 to the body, and 6 to the legs. With 22 seconds of ground control time and 1 of 2 on his takedown attempts. So you're not going to be able to survive a fight for very long if you get hit 28 times in the head by Ngannou. Who like I said is probably the hardest hitting man in all of sports and now we look towards the future and what's next for Francis Ngannou no fight has yet been scheduled for him nearly a month out from when he won that uh UFC title that heavyweight title but of course John Jones tweeted show me the money so he's saying he needs upwards of 10 million dollars to fight Ngannou that's a lot of money and if John Jones really wants this fight then he will make it happen if he doesn't and he's just posturing to try to get more money and maybe this fight doesn't happen, then I think we can say that John Jones doesn't really want to fight this guy. I mean, who would? I consider him the scariest man in all of sports, as I said earlier. And I think John Jones might have genuine fear going in there against Ngannou, which is why he's asking for so much money to take on this guy. But for me... The next guy in line to challenge Ngannou for the title would be Derrick Lewis. Derrick Lewis beat him uh, before when they fought, I believe by unanimous decision, in one of the most boring and bizarre fights that I can remember in UFC history. So maybe they do a rematch there after what uh, Derrick Lewis did to Curtis Blades, another top heavyweight contender. And for Jon Jones... I think he needs to get a tune-up fight or two before he takes on Francis Ngannou in the heavyweight division. And now let's touch on the very amazing career of Stepe Miocic. Miocic right now he's 38 years old and Ngannou is 34 years old. So four years younger. But it seems like Miocic and his best days are behind him. I still think he could be Most heavyweights in the division not named Nganu And we'll see if he does indeed get a trilogy fight against Nganu. He hasn't said he's going to retire. So maybe you match up Miocic against a top heavyweight. Like a Curtis Blades, Alexander Volkov, maybe even Cyril Gane. To see if he can, you know, once again reach that mountaintop. And you look at Stipe's long and storied career. I mean he's beat a who's who of heavyweight greats. He beat Francis Ngannou in their first fight, Junior Dos Santos, Alistair Overeem, Fabricio Verdum, Andrei Orlovsky, Mark Hunt, uh, even Fabio Maldonado. So he's has all the great heavyweights, and of course he beat Daniel Cormier twice. So I think looking at his resume, and how long he's been fighting, and how long he was the UFC heavyweight champion, he does deserve a trilogy fight with Ngannou. I don't think that's the fight that happens next for either of these fighters, but I could definitely see it happening down the road if both Nganu and Miocic look really good in their next fights. But to me, it's going to be very difficult for any heavyweight to beat Nganu. Early on in Nganu's career, he was fighting off pure instinct and athletic ability. Now he's combined those instincts and athletic ability with patience, technically sound, Take down defense and striking techniques to become all the more dangerous fighter. So now he's not just going out there all crazy looking for the knockout. No, he's planning it out, seeing when he can take his openings, and then pouncing when he gets those opportunities. That's what makes him so dangerous. Is he combines that amazing power with patience and precision, and he's definitely got more technically sound in his striking and his wrestling as his fight career has uh, continued on fight after fight. He's learned from his mistakes, and I can't wait to see where Ngannou goes from here. Now let's get on to the next UFC recap, which would be UFC Fight Night. Vittori vs. Holland happened on April 10th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. In the main event, we had a big middleweight showdown between Marvin Vittori And Kevin Holland. And right now in the middleweight division. Of course Israel Adesanya is still the champion. Number 1 contender Robert Whittaker. 2 Paolo Costa. 3 Marvin Vittori. 4 Jared Cannonier, 5 Derek Brunson. And all the way down at 12 is Kevin Holland. So clearly Holland is coming off a really quick turnaround. After losing his last time out against Derek Brunson. By the way Derek Brunson is... The 5th ranked contender just after Jared Cannier at 4th. So coming off 2 straight losses for Kevin Holland. First to Marvin Vittori the 3rd ranked contender. And Derek Brunson the 5th ranked. Kevin Holland has now dropped all the way down to 12. After a very promising 2020 which saw him win 5 fights in that calendar year alone. I think he might have had... The best 2020 out of any fighter in the UFC. That's not a current champion. But outside of that and going into 2021. It's clear that some weaknesses have been exposed in his game. Specifically his takedown defense and his ground game. He's a great striker. I think he could match up with anyone on the feet. If he can keep the fight on the feet. I like his chances against anyone in the division. But if it does go to the ground. As we saw, it happened to him against Derek Brunson and now Marvin Vittori. That's clearly where his weaknesses lie. And it's very hard for a fighter later on in their career to become much better at wrestling. It's something that you kind of get ingrained in you early on in your MMA training. Like we've seen with guys like Khabib Nurmagomedov or George St. Pierre, John Jones. Guys that kind of just have this intrinsic uh, knowledge of wrestling and how to get up after being taken down, or how to take down their opponents and keep them down. And I don't think that Kevin Holland has that intrinsic knowledge of wrestling, which is why I think he's going to continue to run into these barriers in his career uh, as he continues on into his next fights. Now looking at the fight stats for this middleweight main event showdown, the Tory he landed... 152 total strikes out of 250 thrown. 24 significant strikes. 22 to the head. And 2 to the body. 0 to the legs. And he had 20 minutes and 1 second of ground control time. In a 5 round fight that lasted 25 minutes. So that's right. Only about 5 minutes of this fight were fought on the feet. The rest of the time Vittori was pretty much controlling Holland on the ground. And... Vittori was 11 of 17 on his takedown attempts, and he had one submission attempt. His opponent, Kevin Holland, landed 138 out of 214 total strikes, so pretty efficient there. 37 significant strikes, 24 to the head, 5 to the body, and 8 to the legs. Only 3 seconds of ground control time, as he was clearly dominated on the ground for a majority of this fight. And for Vittori, he's coming off some big wins in his past few fights. I mean, you look at his fight history. He hasn't lost since 2018. And that is to the current champion Israel Adesanya by split decision. I think he definitely deserves a rematch with Adesanya. And if Adesanya doesn't want to come back and fight right now, then maybe match up uh, Marvin Vittori against Robert Whitaker. And the winner of that fight gets Adesanya next. But I believe the next fight will be Whitaker versus Adesanya, leaving Vittoria to wait for his title shot. Maybe you match up Vittori against Jared Kinnear next? We'll see what happens. But looking at Vittoria's record, since that split decision lost to Adesanya in 2018, he's went on to beat Cesar Ferreira, Andrew Sanchez, Carl Robertson, Jack Hermanson, and most recently Kevin Holland. And Vittori is of Italian descent, represents Italy when he fights, and he's only 27 years old. So right now he's in the prime of his career, and I think a title shot for Vittori will happen, if not in his next fight, then probably the fight after that. And even though Vittori won this fight in pretty much dominant fashion, I thought some weaknesses were still exposed uh, by Kevin Holland, Because I thought Holland was having a lot of success on the feet. And if he could have kept this fight standing I think he would have won. But I think Vittori knew that he wasn't going to win this fight if it stayed on the feet. That's why he kept going for those takedowns. And most of the time he was successful. But this shows the weakness of Kevin Holland. Which is he can't uh, stop takedowns at an effective rate. And the weakness in Marvin Vittori. And maybe that... He's a little suspect on the feet and can be hit and taken advantage of if the fight does stay standing. Now looking ahead to the future for both Vittori and Kevin Holland. If indeed the next title fight in that middleweight division will be between Israel Adesanya and Robert Whitaker, Which right now seems like the most likely outcome. Then for Marvin Vittori maybe you have him take on Paulo Costa or Jared Kinnanier next. Those guys right now are ranked 2nd and 4th respectively in the middleweight division. Vittori Slotson at 3rd. So I think a top 5 uh, middleweight matchup for Vittori would be really good for his career to see if he does indeed deserve the next title shot after Robert Whittaker gets his second crack at Israel Adesanya. And for Kevin Holland, he's kind of got to work on his takedown defense really short that. Weakness in his fight game, and if he does, then I think the sky's the limit for him. but right now he's got that glaring weakness that he's really got to work on, and for Kevin Holland, maybe next he takes on Chris Weidman, Uriah Hall, perhaps Kevin Calvin Gastlin, who just came off a loss to Robert Whitaker, so there's a lot of exciting fights out of there out there for Kevin Holland, even though he's coming off two straight losses. I still consider him one of the most exciting fighters in the UFC and maybe match him up against a fighter that's not so wrestling dominant so it can see more of the striking that makes Kevin Holland such a promising fighter. And now a word from our sponsor, k Have you ever had sunglasses that just break even though maybe you paid good money for them or they just get uh, too scratched up and you can't really see that clearly out of them? Well guess what, Canon has the solution for you. It's time to make your outdoor experiences better with Canon. Canon sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. They're made with Japanese optics that make their lenses clearer, lighter, stronger, and Italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch. Use the exclusive code Canon Cast Fifteen at Canon.com to receive fifteen percent off on your first pair. That's K A E N O one five. Canon, clearly better. And now a word from our sponsor, Just Live. Support for our podcast is brought to you by Just Live, a trusted source for high quality wellness CBD products created by athletes just for you. And these CBD products can really help with your energy, your focus, immune system, or uh, if you're feeling stressed out or having trouble falling asleep. I know during this time I've been going through some of these things. I definitely want to keep my immune system up, especially with COVID 19. I do want to say I got my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, so I'm very thankful that that happened. However, sometimes I do have trouble falling asleep at night, and I think a product that comes from Just Live would really help with my sleep difficulties. That's why Just Live came out with their new CBD gummy line. They have 6 different flavors and functions including sleep, energy, focus, immunity, calm, and vitamin C. Plus they're vegan and low sugar. Just Live was founded by professional athletes Clay Thompson, Alex Morgan, Travis Pastrana, and Paul Rodriguez because they wanted to create a CBD product that they could trust and could stand behind. If you need support with sleep, focus, energy, stress, or immune health, I highly recommend giving these a try. Right now, if you buy one of their new gummies products, you get one free. There are six different benefits to choose from, and instead of just choosing one, visit justlive.com and use code SUPPORT to buy one, get one free. Buy one, get one free... Of the new Gummies line with code SUPPORT at JustLive.com. That's buy one, get one free at JustLive.com. Use code SUPPORT. S-U-P-P-O-R-T. And now let's get into my next UFC recap. Which was UFC Fight Night Whitaker versus Gastelum. This happened on April 17th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. And originally the main event was supposed to be a Robert Whitaker taking on Paulo Costa. However, Paulo Costa had to pull out of this main event fight because he came down with COVID-19 and then following his battle with COVID, he also came down with a severe case of the flu and his brother was saying he just wasn't right physically, couldn't train like he normally does and he... Paolo Costa actually wanted the fight to be postponed one or two weeks to give him more time to recover and then get that matchup with Robert Whitaker. However, the UFC decided to move ahead with uh, this fight card anyways without Paolo Costa and matched up Whitaker against Calvin Gastelum instead. So unfortunately for us fight fans, it's unlikely we're going to see Robert Whitaker and Paolo Costa fight each other that would have been a great fight, more competitive I believe than the one against Kelvin Gastelum. And now for Robert Whitaker, I think next up is a rematch against Israel Adesanya for the title. But first let's get into the main event on that evening. It was a heavyweight matchup between Andre Arlovsky who is now 42 years old and his opponent Chase Sherman who is only 31 years old. But despite this 11 year age gap, Arlovsky looked like the fresher fighter in there, the fighter with more energy, more willing to push the pace, and definitely had better stamina over the course of those 3 rounds. And Arlovsky won by unanimous decision 29-28 to 28, on all 3 judges scorecards. What Arlovsky is doing is... In the heavyweight division at 42 years old is really something to behold the fact that at his advanced age he's still able to go in there and beat top heavyweights uh, in a very tough division in one of the toughest sports in the world is something that's very impressive and you just got to tip your hat to Andre Orlovsky for always going out there and giving his all giving all his effort in each one of his fights and let's look at Arlovsky's record. He's uh, lost to Jorginho Rosenstreich by knockout in 2019. After that, two unanimous decision wins over Felipe Lins and Tanner Bowser. He's coming off a submission loss to Tom Aspinall. That was back in February of 2021. But now he's coming off a win most recently over Chase Sherman uh, in the co-main event. Of this UFC fight card. And overall this was a pretty exciting fight to watch. Both guys were going at at it. A lot of strikes thrown. Really mostly a stand up fight. Not much of a wrestling matchup here. Between these two guys. But Arlovsky still shows at his late age. That he's still one of the best boxers in the sport fundamentally sound in terms of how he strikes and how he gets out of range of course he's still prone to some losses but he's still a quality heavyweight and I hope the UFC keeps him on and in their promotion for a few more fights because he's still an exciting heavyweight to watch and Arlovsky has been in the MMA game his first fight was in 1999 so over two decades of experience in the fighting game. And although he's lost to guys like Jarzinho Rosenstrike, Tai Tuivasa, Francis Ngannou, Alistair Overeem, Stipe Miocic in the past, he's also got wins over guys like Frank Muir, Antonio Silva, Travis Brown, uh, Stefan Struve. So this guy, also more recently Ben Rothwell, and in his last fight over Chase Sherman. So clearly this guy isn't a top heavyweight. But he can beat a lot of the younger heavyweights that don't have as much experience as him. And maybe you match him next up with Serial Gane. I think Gane would win that fight. But after Arlovsky's performance against Sherman. I think he deserves a top 5 heavyweight. To see if maybe he can have a career renaissance of sorts. Kind of like we saw with what happened with uh, Glover Teixeira in the light heavyweight division. As Teixeira looks next in line to be challenging Jan Blockwitz for his light heavyweight title. Maybe uh, Andre Orlovsky. I'm not sure if he can get to that uh, title shot once again. But maybe matching up against Cyril Gane. Maybe Curtis Blades. And see if he is uh, going to be able to compete with those top guys If not, then you match him up against a younger guy like maybe Marcin Tabura or Augusto Sakai. But looking at the heavyweight rankings, I'm kind of surprised to not see Arlovsky's name in there. He's not even in the top 15 uh, of the rankings for heavyweights, but I definitely think he should be in there. And I think if he gets a win in his next fight, he will be among the top 15. But despite not being in the current rankings on the UFC website. I still think that Arlovsky has a lot left in the tank and is a very quality heavyweight. Now let's look at the fight stats for his most recent win against Chase Sherman. Arlovsky he landed 109 total strikes out of 226 thrown, 105 significant strikes 54 to the head, 26 to the body and 25 to the legs with 39 seconds of ground control time his opponent chase sherman he had uh, 99 total strikes out of 203 thrown 88 significant strikes 55 to the head 16 to the body and 17 to the legs so clearly arlovsky won the striking battle there even only marginally but i still think he landed definitely the harder shots arlovski has got a great 1-2 that he's able to get off against most, most fighters. He's got a decent jab which really sets up the rest of his combinations. And that's why he's been able to have success even later in his career at 42 years old. It's because of the fundamentals he developed at a very early age in the fight game. And he's combining those fundamentals with all that experience he has fighting all these great fighters... To really come out on top uh, in these really even matchups when you look at the odds. I mean even in the matchup against Tanner Bowser, I believe that Arlovsky was the underdog. But he was still able to come out on top. So that just shows you what steely determination. And a good veteran work ethic can get you in this fight game. And I've heard a lot of commentators say they would rather take timing over speed. And that's what Exactly what Arlovsky excels at is he has really great timing with one he, when he throws his punches and when he gets out of range. He's able to throw that one-two, really get that jab out there to push his opponent back and then land that beautiful straight right hand right on the chin of his opponents. We saw this both both against Tanner Bowser and recently against Chase Sherman. That just shows uh, how you want to box fundamentally in the UFC. And Arlovsky's really good at punching in between his opponent's punches. Really able to get his timing down quite well. And I'm really looking forward to watching Arlovsky continue on in his legendary and storied career in his next fight. And while Arlovsky might not be the best heavyweight ever. The longevity that he's been able to have in this very brutal sport over 20 years in the fight game. Shows that he's been taking very good care of his body. And he's able to recover after his fights very well. And it just shows that he's a very durable fighter. That's still very determined to win each time he steps into the octagon. And maybe in his next fight. He takes on a guy that he recently lost to. He lost to Augusto Sakai by split decision. And Taiwa Tuivasa by unanimous decision. Also lost to Marcin. Tabura by unanimous decision so maybe you do a rematch when with one of those younger fighters to see if Orlovsky has learned from his mistakes and if he can't come out on the winning end in perhaps a rematch with one of those fighters but if not there's a lot of other options for Orlovsky in the heavyweight division and we'll see who he gets matched up with next and for Chase Sherman this was kind of a make or break fight for him He really needed this win to try to gain some momentum in that heavyweight division. But for now, I don't see him having the skill, the speed, or the defensive instincts to really become a great fighter in the sport. He'll kind of just be a decent fighter that will probably lose uh, to fighters that are a little better than, than him or at the same level. However, going into this fight, Sherman actually did have a fair bit of momentum behind him. Because he was coming off four straight knockout wins over Frank Tate, Jeremy May, Rashawn Jackson, and Ike Villanueva. However, that win streak was stopped by Andrei Orlovsky after he won their fight by unanimous decision. So this just shows you, you could be on a win streak until you meet that opponent that's just a little bit better than you. And that's what happened on this night against Orlovsky. Now let's get into the main event which was a middleweight matchup between Robert Whitaker and Kelvin Gastelum. I said earlier that Paolo Costa was supposed to be in this main event. However he had to pull out due to sickness from a severe case of the flu. So let's get into this main event. Whitaker, he's 30 years old the former middleweight champion and he stands at 6 feet even. His opponent, Kelvin Gastelum, is twenty-nine years old, and he stands at a short five foot nine. And Robert Whitaker has a seventy-three-inch reach, whereas Kelvin Gastelum has a seventy-one-inch reach. So clearly, that discrepancy in size and in reach for Robert Whitaker are some of the key reasons why he won this fight. But Whitaker is also an evolving striker. It seems like in each fight he's getting better and better in his striking game. And this is sometimes the case for these great fighters. They suffer a loss like Robert Whitaker suffered against Israel Adesanya. It actually makes them better. It makes them improve and work on the weaknesses so they don't suffer that same loss again. And in fighters we've kind of seen this go both ways. You look at a case like Tyron Woodley. He suffered a loss to Kamara Usman, and after that fight, I don't think he's gone better. In fact, I think he's gone worse and worse. I think just the opposite has happened for Robert Whitaker. Since that loss to Israel Adesanya, we've seen in each fight he's improved himself even more and more. You look at how he pretty much dominated Darren Till from start to finish. He did The same to Kelvin Gastelum who is getting hit over and over. Whether it was with lay kicks or uh, quick combination punching. Whitaker has an advanced sense of range and when to get in and out of the pocket. So he can land his own strikes as well as defend against uh, the oncoming strikes from Gastelum. And I think Whitaker has really improved his overall defensive instincts as well. And looking at the fight stats for his fight against Coven Gastelum, that further just proves this point. Whitaker, he landed 169 out of 303 total strikes, landed 150 significant strikes, 115 to the head of Gastelum, 13 to the body, and 22 to the legs. With 4 minutes and 19 seconds of ground control time, and was 4 of 7 on his takedown attempts. Gastelum, he only landed 70 strikes in a 5 round fight. That's right, only about, let's do the math here. So, 70 divided by 5 is 14. That's right, he only landed 14 strikes on Whitaker in each round. That is amazing defense by Whitaker. Against a pretty decent striker in Gastelum, who we saw really push Israel Adesanya to his limit. In one of the great fights, I believe in uh, 2019, I think it was actually the fight of the year. So looking at what Gastelum did against Adesanya, you figured maybe he could do something similar against Robert Whitaker. No, Whitaker was having none of it. He wasn't going to be able to be compromised in this fight because Whitaker was on his game, both offensively and defensively. Now, looking at the stats, as I said, Gastelum only landed 70 out of 218 total strikes, 62 significant strikes, 42 to the head, 7 to the body, and 13 to the legs for only 26 seconds of ground control time, and he was 1 of 5 on his takedown attempts. And that's something else that I like about Whitaker, is that he's not just uh, a striker exclusively, he'll also mix it up and go for takedowns which will always keep his opponents guessing. Because not only is he a great striker. But Whitaker is also a very accomplished wrestler. As we saw against Calvin Gastelum. Taking him down when Gastelum didn't expect it. Uh, when he was expecting a strike. That's when Whitaker would land a takedown. Now let's delve a little bit more into the really amazing defense. That Robert Whitaker has been displaying over the course of. Of his last couple of fights. So against Darren Till. Till only landed 50 total strikes. Whitaker landed 100 total strikes. And that was in a 5 round fight. That Whitaker only got hit 50 times by Darren Till. So only 10 times a round. That is even more impressive than the 14 times he got hit by uh, Kevin Gastelum in his most recent fight. And then against the very dangerous Jared Cannonier, who actually a lot of people expected to perhaps knock out Robert Whitaker, Whittaker ended up winning that fight by unanimous decision. However, this was only a three round fight. Whitaker landed 75 total strikes. His opponent Cannonier, only landed 58. So this just continues to prove my point that in each fight Whitaker's defense is getting better and better and he's also becoming a much more fluid striker uh, not taking as many chances with his striking not leaning forward like he did when he got caught by Israel Adesanya. So that's what you like to see from these great fighters. They clean up their weaknesses and they come out better for it on the other end. So since suffering that knockout loss to Israel Adesanya Robert Whitaker has went on To beat the number 4 ranked middleweight in Jared Kananier. The number 6 in Darren Till. And most recently the number 8 ranked middleweight in Calvin Gastelum. So I think this sets himself up for a rematch against Israel Adesanya. And right now I honestly don't know who would win that fight. I still tend to favor Israel Adesanya because of his amazing striking versatility. And the unpredictability with which he fights with. But sometimes losses affect fighters differently and they're not the same after a loss. Of course we know Adesanya is coming off a loss in his uh, move to light heavyweight when he lost to Jan Blockwitz by unanimous decision. So we've got to see how he recovers from that loss going into his next fight at middleweight as the middleweight champion. Now I would love to see Robert Whitaker get his title back and I cannot wait for that rematch between Adesanya and Whitaker and for Kelvin Gastelum he's clearly got to work on his defense and I noticed during this fight he was too flat-footed and the opposite was true of Robert Whitaker who was always up on his toes always moving around uh, able to move laterally very quickly or forward and backwards very quickly whereas Kelvin Gastelum was too flat-footed which is why he got caught with so many right hands so many head kicks From Robert Whitaker it was because his footwork was lacking uh, in terms of moving around the octagon more quickly and getting out of range of Whitaker. Clearly uh, Calvin Gaslam has taken some severe beatings in his career against the likes of Israel Adesanya and now more recently against the amazing Robert Whitaker. So we'll see where he goes from here. He's clearly been in with the best guys in the middleweight division and hasn't been uh, knocked out by them. So you got to give him a lot of credit for that. Maybe match up Calvin Gastelum next against uh, Uriah Hall, maybe Chris Weidman. How about Calvin Gastelum versus Kevin Holland? I really think that's the matchup to make. Right now, Kevin Holland is ranked 12th and Calvin Gastelum is ranked 8th in the middleweight division. I think this would be a great uh, fight for both of these fighters. They're two pretty decent middleweights, both coming off losses, and they really need to get back on the winning track. And I see this as a pick and fight. I could see Kevin Holland leaning a lot of strikes on the feet and really beating up Kelvin Gastelum. I could also see Gastelum uh, really getting into a striking rhythm and maybe taking down Kevin Holland to expose his pretty bad takedown defense so that would be a middleweight matchup that I would love to see and for Robert Whitaker I think next up for him is the champion Israel Adesanya so we'll see what happens in the middleweight division after some big wins by Marvin Vittori and Robert Whitaker they both set themselves up for big fights in the future and now it's time for the preview of UFC 261, Usman vs. Masvidal 2. Coming up April 24th from the Vice Star Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida. That's right, it's coming to you from Jacksonville, about the only place they'll be allowing fans. So it'll be a full house in there with, I believe, around 15,000 fans. Of course they had to sign a waiver so if they get COVID-19 Dana White and the UFC are not responsible for it. However it will be nice to have that atmosphere in there because we've gotten so used to watching these UFC fights at the apex without really any fans there. So that atmosphere should really add another nice layer to a pretty nice uh, fight card here and let's get into some previews. With the main card being on pay-per-view at 7 p.m., prelims on ESPN and ESPN Plus at 5 p.m., and early prelims on ESPN 2 and ESPN Plus starting at 3 p.m. So uh, looking at the fourth fight on uh, the pay-per-view fight card, we've got a matchup at middleweight between Uriah Hall and Chris Weidman. This is really a pick-and-fight. Uh, Hall is the slight underdog at plus 105. Weidman the slight favorite at minus 125. For this fight I actually like Hall to win. I really liked how he looked uh, going in there against the legend Anderson Silva. Really able to match wits with him and not get overconfident in there. As he was able to uh, knock out Anderson Silva in the 4th round. Effectively retiring him. We don't know if Silva will be signing with another promotion, but I don't think he'll be fighting the UFC again. And looking at uh, Uriah Hall's record here, he's only lost to the cream of the crop uh, in his middleweight division. He's lost to Paulo Costa by knockout, also Gergard Mousasi and Mousassi and uh, Derek Brunson. He's also lost to Robert Whitaker. So while he might not be uh, at the top of his division. He's definitely shown in the past that he's a very quality fighter. And that's why I think he's going to have a little bit more up his sleeve than uh, Chris Weidman is ready for. And uh, Chris Weidman, he's also been Anderson Silva in the past. But since that fight, I believe he got knocked out by Luke Rockhold. And after that, he really hasn't been the same. So yeah, looking at his record... Uh, he got lost by knockout to Luke Rockhold uh, back in 2015, then followed that up with two knockout losses to Gegard Mousasi and Yoel Romero. More recently, he beat Omari Akhmedov in his last fight, a unanimous decision win, but previous to that, he got knocked out by Jacare Souza and Dominic Reyes. He also has a win over Calvin Gastelum. Even though he's a slight favorite in this fight, I think that Uriah Hall has the better all-round game in terms of his striking, and I believe he might also have the height and reach advantage, as uh, Chris Weidman is 6'2", with a 78-inch reach, and Uriah Hall is 6' feet with a 79.5-inch reach. So he is a little shorter, but has a longer reach, and both fighters are 36 years old, And clearly they're no longer at the top of the middleweight division. But a win here puts both of them in a decent position to continue on and get bigger fights. And I actually like this matchup a lot because it is a pretty even matchup. I'm not really sure who's going to win, but I'll go ahead and pick Uriah Hall by split decision. So looking forward to that fight. But really where this uh, fight card gets interesting is in the women's showcase. We've not only got one women's title fight, but two. We've got Valentina Shevchenko, the best uh, fighter in women's MMA, not named Amanda Nunes. She's taking on Jessica Andrade in uh, the third fight on this fight card. And looking at the stats here, Shevchenko is five foot five with a sixty-six and a half inch reach. Her opponent Andrade is only five foot one with a sixty-two inch reach. So I really don't know how Andrade is going to be able to keep up with Shevchenko on the feet. I think for her she's going to try to have to take her down and see if she can really control her on the ground. But Shevchenko has also shown a great ground game. She's really a very well-rounded fighter that doesn't seem to have any weaknesses. And Shevchenko is fighting out of Kyrgyzstan and she is 33 years old. Her opponent Andrade fighting out of Brazil and is 29 years old. And the reason that Andrade is getting this title shot is based off her most recent performances. You look at what she did in her uh, previous fight. Getting a knockout win over Caitlin Chikugian in the first round. Very impressive there beating up uh, the taller fighter in Chikugian. But previous to that, she lost to Zhang Wei Li by knockout and Rose Namajunas by split decision in their rematch. So this uh, woman is clearly at the top of her game, but I think that Valentina Shevchenko is just on another level than her in terms of her striking, in terms of her grappling, and I really don't see any path for victory for Andrade unless she gets like a big slam kind of a freak uh, incident kind of like when she uh, slammed Nama Yunus down right on her head and that was the end of the fight that was kind of a freak accident and that's why in the rematch Nama Yunus uh, came out the winner and uh, looking at the odds they kind of back up what I'm saying Shevchenko a minus 470 favorite Andrade a pretty big underdog at plus 360 so I'll go ahead and pick Shevchenko to win I'll say by third round knockout. Shevchenko's record is 20-3, and Andrade's record is 21-8, and this is for the women's flyweight title at 125 pounds. And I've long said that both Amanda Nunes and Valentina Shevchenko don't really have any worthy challengers to fight in their own weight classes, and they should just run it back a third time and give us fight fans what we all want to see, the two best fighters in women's MMA going up against each other in a trilogy matchup. And the first uh, two fights between Shevchenko and Nunes both went to decision. I believe one was a unanimous decision for Nunes, the other a split decision. So both pretty close fights, and they've both gone better uh, since they lost fought. So I think it's uh, high time that we see them fight for a third time, especially because no other woman can really come close to matching their level of skill and dominance inside the octagon. And then you look at Jevchenko's last fight. It was a unanimous decision win over Jennifer Maya, but she even faced some adversity in that fight. I believe she might have lost the second round because of some ground control by Maya, but she was quickly able to turn the tide in the following rounds, taking her down, beating her up, and overall, uh, really just overwhelming her to get that win. And she's been in there against the best of the best, and like I said, she's only lost to Amanda Nunes in her career, and also Liz Carmouche. but that was all the way back in 2010, so that uh, almost doesn't even matter. But she's been the likes of Holly Holm, a much bigger fighter physically, Juliana Pena, and she's been uh, most recently Joanna Uresic, Jessica I, Liz Carmouche, Kaylin Chikugian, and coming off a unanimous decision win, over Jennifer Maya in November of 2020. She's really one of the most well-rounded fighters, man or woman, in the sport, and it's always a great pleasure to watch her perform. So I'll go ahead and pick Shevchenko by third round knockout. Now let's get to the co-main event on the evening, and that is for the women's strawweight title at 115 pounds. So these women are even lighter than 125, and the champion is the only uh, champion from... The Khanen of Asia in Zhang Wei Li, and she'll be taking on the American Rose Nama And I don't know if you've been keeping up with some of the storylines going into this fight, but Nama made some controversial comments saying that she's fighting against communism because she believes that Zhang Wei Li represents communist China and she's fighting Big Red. I didn't really like those comments because Zhang Wei Li has never said anything controversial. She just kind of keeps her heads down and uh, becomes this great fighter that we see in front of us. And I don't like that uh, Rose Nami Yunus did that. So I think Zhang Wei Li might have a little added motivation after hearing those controversial comments coming uh, out from her American opponent. And now let's look at uh, the fighter stats here. So Zhang Wei Li is uh, from China, and she's 5'4", 31 years old, and has a 63-inch reach, and her record is 21-1, with 10 knockouts and 7 submissions, showing that she can either get it done on the feet, or on the ground, and she has wins over Ticia Torres, Jessica Andrade, the woman that's fighting Valentina Shevchenko, and most recently, a win over u n Uresic, a split decision win, back on March of 2020. So more than a year layoff for uh, Zhang Wei Li going into this fight, but that's because that fight against u n Uresic really took something from both fighters. I mean, that was definitely the fight of the year in 2020. Both those women did not stop going forward, did not stop trying to land that knockout, and it made for an all-out action fight. And if you haven't watched it, go back and check it out before Zhang Wei Li is in her next fight here, uh, coming up against Rose Yunus And what that fight showed me is the incredible heart and the incredible ter- determination and stamina that Zhang Wei Li possesses. And that's what really made her a star in the sport. Is that great fight. And that's sometimes what it takes to push these great fighters into stardom is not just being dominant but also having great fights where they face some adversity because the fans will always remember those types of fights and always want to see those fighters fight again so it not only helped Zhang Li's career but also Yuana Uresic because uh, they shared that leg- legendary knight in the octagon and for Rose Namajunas she's 5 foot 5 115 pounds 28 years old With a 65 inch reach, and her record is 10 and 4. Most recently, she got a split decision win over Jessica Andrade, avenging her knockout loss to her in her previous fight. She's also beat Joanna Jurassic twice, Michelle Watterson, Ticia Torres, Paige Van Sant, and uh, she lost to Carla Esperanza back in 2014. So, all these women have kind of already fought each other before. Just Gondrade fought Shevchenko, and Zhang Wei Li has fought Yuana Uresik in her previous fight. And looking at the stats here, Nama Yunus is only an inch taller, and her reach, she only has a 2 inch reach advantage. And Zhang Wei Li showed against Uresik that she's able to fight taller fighters and still get on the inside and land her own uh, devastating punches and kicks. She's a really well-rounded fighter, clearly showing that she can get it done on the feet or on the ground, and I think she just has more determination than Yunis to get the job done, which is why I like her to keep her title. And looking at the odds for this fight, Zhang Wei Li checks in as the favorite at minus 200, uh, Yunis the underdog at plus 170, And I'll go ahead and pick Zhang Wei Li to retain her title. I'll say by uh, unanimous decision. I think this is going to be an all-out war. And Naima Yunus has pretty good durability in there. And she's been in there with the top women in her division. So I think she's going to give Zhang Wei Li some pretty trying moments in there. I see this being a pretty competitive fight. With the striking versatility that both fighters are able to employ. But like I said, I just like the heart and determination of Zhang Wei Li a little bit more. That's ultimately why the why she won the fight against Yuana Uresik, And that's ultimately why I think she'll come out victorious against Rose Namajunas. And now it's time to preview the main event. A welterweight rematch between the champion Kamara Usman and the challenger Jorge Masvidal. Usman is the pretty big favorite here at minus 450. Masvidal the underdog at plus 350 so looking at the stats for this fight Usman he's six feet 170 pounds he's 33 years old with a 76 inch reach and his story is truly a story of the American dream he emigrated with his family from Nigeria to America when he was eight years old and Nigerians they generally want their children to become professionals like doctors or lawyers and they really didn't want Kamar Usman to be wrestling. But when they saw how good he was. They uh, got on board with his dream. And now he's become the UFC champion. And I think a really telling thing about Kamara Usman. Is a quote I heard from him the other day. He says the fear of losing for him is worse than the thrill of winning. So that just shows you that he never wants to feel Uh, loss again he only has one professional loss in his career and since then he's been undefeated so that's what happens with these great fighters sometimes a loss makes them better and sometimes they're never the same following that loss for Kamara Usman it only pushed him to achieve greatness in the sport which he already has as he's established himself as one of the best welterweights in UFC history and Jorge Masvidal, he's 36 years old, 5'11", 170 pounds with a 74-inch reach. And his in his last fight out, he lost to Kamara Usman by unanimous decision. It really was a pretty boring fight because Kamara Usman pretty much just took him down or held him up against the fence and really controlled a majority of the action. Masvidal could never really get his striking going and make it a competitive fight. Now that was partly because Masvidal, I believe, only had six days notice and had to cut about 30 pounds of weight in that short time period, leaving him drained going into this fight. Now for this rematch against Kamara Usman, Jorge Masvidal has had, I believe, about two months to prepare, so no excuses this time. He has the adequate time, adequate uh, training camp to really prepare for Kamara Usman. However, I still see Kamaru Usman coming out on top. He's just too well-rounded on the ground. And I think he's beaten uh, better fighters in the past like Colby Covington and Gilbert Burns, who I would consider better fighters than Jorge, Jorge Masvidal at this point. But Jorge Masvidal, previous to this fight, he rose to stardom because of two knockout wins over Darren Till and Ben Askren, and then another TKO doctor stoppage win over Nate Diaz. So in 2019 it was really the year of Jorge Masvidal with the th- with those three big wins setting up that big title fight against Kamara Usman. And Usman's record is 18 and 1. His only loss came all the way back in 2013 in only his second professional fight. Since then he's gone on to achieve great things in the UFC. Right now, he's the welterweight champion in the UFC, and he's going into his fifth title defense. Well, actually, his fourth title defense, because when he beat Tyrone Woodley, that would be him claiming the title. Since then, he has went on to defend his title, beating Kobe Covington by knockout, Jorge Masvidal by unanimous decision, and Gilbert Burns by knockout. And I thought the Gilbert Burns fight would really be a Harder test for Kamar Usman, but I think that Kamar Usman not only has amazing wrestling, but perhaps the best jab in all of the UFC because that's exactly what flummoxed uh, Gilbert Burns going into their fight. Early on in the first round, I thought that Gilbert Burns won that round, but Kamar Usman quickly made an adjustment, switched his stances, switched his stance, and started jabbing with the left hand, which really put Gilbert Burns off balance. Also the leg kicks really uh, made his legs go wobbly and he was no longer uh, had a steady base because of the overall striking game of Kamar Usman. So this just shows me that each fight Usman is getting better and in between rounds he's able to make in-fight adjustments. It's not only his body that makes him such a special fighter. It's also his mind and his determination to get the win. And I don't see Jorge Masvidal getting the win. Unless he gets a freak knockout somehow. But I don't see that happening. So I'm picking Kamaru Usman to win. And this time I think he's going to finish Jorge Masvidal. So I'll say Usman by 5th round knockout. And Usman has the 2 inch reach advantage. And he's also an inch taller than Masvidal, along with the superior wrestling game and the striking game to match. Masvidal, I see Usman winning this fight without too much trouble. And Dana White already said that if Usman beats Masvidal here, then next up for him is a rematch with Colby Covington. And I actually think that Covington fight was the toughest fight of Usman's career. I believe the judges had Covington up on the scorecards going into the fifth round when Usman was able to stop Covington and retain his title. So that would be a very juicy rematch to look forward to. And for Masvidal, this is really a make or break fight for him. If he can somehow claim the welterweight title away from Usman, it only helps his star power. But if he loses, then I think he's just another fighter in the welterweight division. Don't get me wrong, he's still a very amazing striker to watch, but I know his lifelong dream has Uh, been to become a ufc champion it's just kind of a problem when you run into someone that just does everything a little bit better than you and i think that's exactly what usman will show come saturday night well that will conclude episode number 27 of combat bets on the believe network presented by betonline.ag clearly this was a ufc centric podcast if you want to hear my boxing podcast I'll let you know when that's coming out. But remember, continue to social distance and wear your masks and I hope everyone's getting vaccinated out there. All my listeners, we gotta all get vaccinated and enjoy all the great fights coming up this weekend at UFC 261. And as always, remember Kobe forever, Mamba forever, Hank Aaron forever, Algin Baylor forever, and Diego Maradona forever. I hope everyone's having a great April, and I'm really looking forward to this weekend. Thank you, my fellow believers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.